0: Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In this episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with Dr. Candace Kickler. She's a board certified surgeon at Haas Plastic Surgery in Palm Beach Gardens and Wellington, Florida. Candace is amazing. She did her undergraduate degree at Auburn University. She completed medical school at the University of South Alabama College of Medicine, surgical training at the University of Miami, and she completed her minimally invasive surgical fellowship at Cleveland Clinic, Florida. What I love about Dr. Candace is she's had a lot of experience. She worked for several years in weight loss surgery and aesthetics, Dr. Candice then completed an additional fellowship training in cosmetic plastic surgery and is now a fellow of the American Academy of Cosmetic Surgeons and the American College of Surgeons. Her primary areas of focus include body contouring, liposuction, breast surgery, and injectables. We take a deep dive into breast implant illness. Is it a real thing? Are injectables safe? What are some of the trends in plastic surgery. And here's why I think it's really important. This is a health show and the goal of this show is to have transparent conversations. If we focus on the things that are just the comfortable things, we're never going to grow together. That is why I wanted Dr. Candace to come on and talk about her experience as a surgeon, what she's seeing, what is actually safe and what do we need to look out for. I hope you like the show and I can't wait to hear what you think. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is Apollo Neuro. Listen, if you have been listening to this podcast, then you have definitely heard me talk about the Apollo wearable. What it does is it sends vibratory messages to your body. The Apollo wearable improves the way your body manages stress. It helps you sleep better, stay calm, focus, be more present, and feel less overwhelmed. Now, listen, I actually put the Apollo wearable on my ankle. It really, really helps me. This is one of the products I am probably most excited about over this past year. Um, It was developed by neuroscientists and physicians. It is silent because that would be awkward uh, having a vibratory device on your ankle. But anyway, unlike other health wearables, it doesn't track your biometrics. So I, I really like that, that it just exists and it's not something where you're constantly checking your phone. It does improve your health. It's safe. It's natural. It doesn't have side effects. And you can get $40 off the Apollo wearable at com slash Dr. Lion. That's $40 off. And you can go to com slash Dr. Lion. This makes a fantastic gift. I absolutely love this device. A special thank you to Paleo Valley for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And listen, if you are like me, you always try to use food as medicine and uh, get the most nutrients you can from food. However, there are certain foods that are really rough to eat, like liver, heart, and kidney. If you're like me, you really struggle to eat it and you definitely struggle to cook it. So a great way to get all these bioavailable nutrients is through a organ complex. And Paleo Valley has a grass-fed organ complex that is really, really amazing. It has grass-fed beef liver, which is one of the most nutrient-rich organs of all, excellent source of vitamin A, B vitamins, iron, zinc, copper, and selenium. Grass-fed beef heart, which is a concentrated source of CoQ10, which is really important for cardiovascular health. And if there's an individual who is on a statin, CoQ10 is very important. Grass fed beef heart also has vitamins A, B12, folate, iron. It is the number one source of copper. And in fact, copper deficiency is more common than you'd actually think. And it does affect hair, even though we always think about iron. Copper is something that you can test for in the blood. And uh, it really does impact the way in which you feel. And of course, finally, there's grass fed beef kidney. So, Go to paleovalley.com, put in the code Dr. Lion for 15% off, give it a shot, see if you feel better, and perhaps you're getting nutrients that you're missing. Dr. Candice Kickler, I am so excited to have you on. You are a board-certified surgeon at Haas Plastic Surgery in Palm Beach Gardens and Wellington, Florida you are a native of Alabama which we I wish we had more time we, we would talk about that and um you did your undergraduate degree at Auburn you completed medical school at the University of South Alabama College of Medicine you did general surgery residency and then you did a fellowship in bariatric weight loss surgery and then you went back and you did a cosmetic fellowship
1: yes exactly so a real underachiever
0: there, um, must be rough. Uh, you did, let's see, so you are a fellow of the American Academy of Cosmetic Surgery and the American College of Surgeons. Your primary area of interest right now, you're doing uh, body contouring, liposuction, breast surgery, and injectables. In this episode, I am really excited to talk to you. There's three main subjects I'd love to hit, and that is number one, breast Implant illness, which seems to be a very hot topic, and then other trends in plastic surgery, injectables, relative safety, long-term overall health impacts, which people ask all the time. And then finally, weight management and how this impacts, you know, and how weight management and cosmetic surgery kind of come together.
1: Totally. Very excited to get into this with you.
0: Now, I want to read a few numbers here. Okay. Okay. So basically there are, so there's 34.4% increase in explant surgeries from what the the data that they have is 2018 to 2019. So we're seeing a 34% increase in explant surgeries, which is just taking out the breast implants and a decrease, 14.9% decrease in breast augmentations, again, during that timeframe in 2018 to 2019. And I will say, based on some of the numbers that I have here, that there are 400,000 women a year get implants, and only over 100,000 are for reconstruction after surgery, like a mastectomy or breast cancer.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, in the past, three to four years, we have seen a tremendous increase in the number of people who are concerned about their implants, you know, whether or not they're having symptoms, or they have just heard of someone else having symptoms. But we see people often who, you know, just want to know, are these okay? Should I have done this? You know, um, I've had my implants for so many years, they've never given me a problem or they or maybe they have given me a problem, you know, what should I do about it? So, It's something that I talk to patients about frequently.
0: And what is, so the literature uh, would indicate, right? So first of all, how long have implants been used for?
1: They've been used since like the 1960s and 1970s. Now the implants have changed since that time because there was concern, there was, you know, silicone leakage and things like that that happened much more frequently in the first generation of implants but we are now on our fifth and sixth generation of implants. So things have changed dramatically. Um, But, you know, yeah, they, they're there, they are
0: safe. Um, Many people have them. So. And this is, that's unusual for a surgery to have been used for so long. If, um, you know, if if there's a tremendous amount of complications, Is, is that true from a surgical perspective? Absolutely. Because things that, you know, in the surgical field, things that we
1: implant into patients, they go through clearance, you know, they go through rigorous studies and protocols to make sure that they are safe, and they are, you know, something that can be placed inside the body and to be there for, you know, whatever the expected duration is. So an implant, a breast implant specifically, now the, um, the paperwork that you sign whenever you get it, it does state that it's not a lifelong device. However, it is safe to have breast implants for as long as you live, you know, and this is obviously a case by case basis, whether or not you actually want to have them your entire life or not.
0: And how often should someone, if they do have breast implants, how often should they change them?
1: So there's no set number, you know, Um, we've always heard and, you know, as patients, because I personally myself do have breast implants, we've always thought, oh, you know, they need to be replaced every 10 years. That is the manufacturer's warranty on the device themselves. However, if you have an implant, you're seeing a doctor, um, especially if you have any concerns um, or you have any trauma to the area, and you're following up, and if you don't have any problem with the implant, it's perfectly safe to keep it for much, much longer. Uh, You know, recently, I've taken care of patients who this is, you know, their implants have been in for 25 years and we take them out, you know, maybe because they need a lift and they want a downsize or upsize, you know, whatever reason for the revision surgery, and the implants are perfectly intact. So Mm -hmm. there are cases where you can keep it much longer than the quote-unquote manufacturer warranty.
0: So what are some of the biggest risks that people are concerned about with breast implants in general? Prior to, say, this uh, breast implant illness, which I really would love your take on in terms of what is it? How do we diagnose mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Um, where do the yeah. problems lie? Yeah. Right. So before
1: VII became really, um, I, would, I don't want to say popularized, but before it became something that more people were aware of, things that we worried about with breast implants were rupture. Okay. Is the implant going to pop? You know, if you got saline, it's quite obvious when it pops because your breast quickly deflates. Um, or, you know, if you've got silicone or the type of gel and things that have been used in the past, you know, would it leak out? Would I feel some pain? Which could lead to something called capsular contracture, where your body forms a harder scar tissue capsule around the implant itself. Um, you know, movement out of the position of the pocket. Um, immediately after the surgery, we would worry about things like hematoma, so bleeding and bruising around the implant. Um, and then in a certain generation of implants before there was a certain or there is a certain type of lymphoma that's been associated with implants. So those were all the potential risks, all extremely, you know, low percentage of happening. Um, but now we have an additional, you know, diagnosis that doesn't have a necessarily clear definition, um, as we would hope, um, nor a clear set of diagnostic criteria as we would hope, and that's the breast implant illness. So um, especially with, and all the studies state this, so I'm not speaking just off the cuff here, but with the, you know, rise in social media, there has been an, an incredible amount of awareness of a potential disease or a disease that is called breast implant illness. And this is where patients who have implants, you know, and it's been studied and reported in patients with both silicone and saline are reporting systemic symptoms. So symptoms that sound very much like an autoimmune disorder, as in they're having myalgia, muscle pains, arthralgia, joint pains, fatigue, brain fog, you know, just overall feeling of unwellness that people have started to associate or attribute to their breast implants. So that's, what, that's where we're at. We know that it is a thing and we don't exactly know who's gonna get it or what type type of um patient is going
0: to have it or if it's, you know, more common in one person versus the other. So does the totality of evidence um show that that this could be an issue so much so that it would be something that people have to really consider or is this more very fringe from, um, from a medical perspective. And I know that you also, you teach, don't you? You do teaching, yeah, um, yeah, you so, teach other physicians?
1: Yeah, exactly. I um, have been a voluntary associate professor for the University of Miami, for Kansas City Medical School, University, um, Nova, you know, different universities throughout my area. And I've had students, medical students, residents rotate with me I participate in, you know, contributing to the literature, reading the literature, trying to stay up to date and everything related to my field in preparation for this talk. Of course, I, you know, took a deep dive and I was like, you know, let me find out the nitty gritty. Like, what do we really know and what do we not know? And unfortunately, what we do not know definitely surpasses what we know about this condition. So you've got a patient who has breast implants. And have a lot of systemic manifestations, which not to downplay these because they're real, you know, they are suffering from all of these problems. But can we find a direct or even indirect link from the actual implants itself to the systemic symptoms? And right now there's, there's no direct cause, you know. It's kind of like the chicken before the egg. Like, mm-hmm. do you have someone who's predisposed to autoimmune diseases or has a, you know, enhanced immune system that is reacting to an implanted device or did the implanted device trigger an autoimmune response or are they totally not related? You know, there's no
0: real answer yet, unfortunately. Um, and do- And do we see, for example, you had mentioned autoimmunity, do they see all of a sudden a conversion to a positive ANA, which for the listener would be an autoimmune marker? Do we see differences in blood work that uh, a a person who does not have breast implant illness versus a person that is experiencing those symptoms, is their blood work different at all?
1: Right. That's a really good question. And, you know, there, for every study that you find that there is a difference, you can find a study that says the opposite. So Mm -hmm. I have read studies that show that the ANA has been increased in patients who have implants and identify as having breast implant illness. But we also know that ANA increases with age and also is higher in women. So Did they have the high ANA before the implants or would they have had a high ANA level at the same age, at same exact point in time, had they not gotten implants or not? That's really hard to know. You know, we can't predict that. Um, Other biomarkers and things that have been studied, you know, we were worried that or we are worried about the substance silicone in general, you know, it's considered initially an inert ingredient that your body can just handle and that is found in natural naturally that you should not have an autoimmune response to. Um, And studies have shown that, you know, okay, well, maybe we need to be testing for this. Is it going to be in the bloodstream? Is it going to be in the lymph nodes? Early on when implants were leaking at a higher rate, you know, before the moratorium in the 90s, before implants completely changed, they were finding that in the body. But there were people who had the silicone in their lymph nodes or in different parts in their liver or wherever that had no systemic symptoms. So
0: it's that's so interesting. Know. Can you say that again, mm-hmm. uh, Candice? That's so, really important for people to, yeah, to hear and understand. I know, sorry, I'm talking fast. <laughs> no, this is just such um, good information, and I get this question a lot. And actually, yeah. I've had patients that weren't feeling well, took breast implants out, and then they go back to just feeling the same way, and they're really disappointed with the fact that right. they went through this, and then they end up actually going under uh, surgery again to have them right totally uh, to get so, implants you know, again. There are, there, exactly. So there's, you
1: know, you can find an elevation in certain markers, or you can find silicone, or you can find, you know, uh, arsenic, zinc, different levels of different substances in the body. And whether or not they're attributed to the breast implant is what we have to determine and really know if that's making the difference or causing the symptoms. Because we see patients without breast implants, or maybe patients who have breast implants that have no symptoms, that. Still have these biomarkers. So there's no direct correlation between the biomarkers that have been studied to date versus BII or breast implant illness. There's not a specific test. There's not a specific, you know, study that I can run that I can say, yes, you have BII based off of this result. It's a compilation of, you know, how you feel, your systemic symptoms, the fact that you have breast implants, and whether or not it's your decision to take them out and, see if it makes you feel better. And there are people that do feel better. Let's not, you know, disregard that because they're, you know, in some of the studies, over half the patients feel better after the implants come out. But we also have to consider that surgery in itself is such a um, impact, has such an impact on the placebo effect. You know, I don't, you know, again, don't want to downplay anyone's disease or symptoms, but Having a surgery, and you knowing that this is going to help me feel better is probably going to help you feel better to some degree hmm.
0: do you think that um, are you seeing an increase in not concern so much, but do patients come to you with um, breast implant illness have is it something i mean we hear it a lot in in media. Is it something mm-hmm. in clinical practice that you are experiencing more of
1: so are we seeing it? Yes. Are we seeing it in huge numbers? No. But the you know the caveat to that is there are doctors who are marketing themselves as the breast implant surgeon, so breast implant illness surgeon. So I think you know patients are self-selecting to go to someone who says, "This is what you have. This is how I can fix it. Come to me." And you know the ethical aspect of that I think is very debatable. And um, when we have a disease that's not as clearly defined as Vii, um, but, you know, have I seen patients with this? Yes. Have I removed implants? Yes. Do they feel better? Some yes, some no. You know, it's really basically 50-50. With that.
0: Do you think that there will be uh, an improvement in being able to diagnose? Um, and maybe do you think that we'll find something else that is I happening? Hope so. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really hope so, because that would answer a lot of people's questions. And I think that would guide a lot of patients, but mostly a lot of doctors to determine whether or not someone needs to undergo another procedure. You know, surgery is surgery. It's not, no surgery is non-invasive. You know, there's always a risk with every single time we do something. So if we can eliminate the need for something when we don't know for sure if it's going to help you, then that's definitely best for everyone.
0: Yeah, I think you make a really good point. Um, because let's say you make the decision to get breast implants, and then who knows, uh, for some reason you're having this group of symptoms. But the reality is, is then the next question is, what are you going to do about it? And yeah. the idea that you know, obviously, for individuals who, uh, for some reason, get implants and then immediately feel horrible. Uh, and you know, let's say fifty percent of them get better. The next question is, what about the individuals that they're not certain that the breast implants have any impact? But because of this rise in social media, then are uh, putting themselves in an un—you know—in a perhaps compromising state to then undergo the knife yet again. And of course, g- you know, general anesthesia, while mostly safe, you know, over a period of time, definitely has cognitive risks. Uh, from my perspective. Right.
1: Right. And you know, and on top of the anesthetic component and the going under the surgery, the mental aspect of that, it's also the physical outcome. You know, you start at point A, you have breast augmentation and you're at point B. And then you go through this, you know, basic basically reconstruction surgery and you look nothing like point B anymore you don't look like point A anymore. And so psychologically, that can have a really big impact on someone, especially someone who's young and has many, many years
0: ahead of them, you know, it's, it can be very tough. Hmm. What are some of the issues? So they there was a connection with breast implants and cancer a while ago, you said you had mentioned lymphoma with a textured implant?
1: Yeah, so that, had you know, that also is it's extremely rare. So there's not a lot of information onto exactly how that developed. Um, But from the literature that we do know and the studies that we do know that it's associated with textured implants and by far and large, textured implants are not used routinely, especially not for primary breast augmentation. They are sometimes used and indicated in certain reconstructive cases. But, you know, if you go, you know, on to Miami, ninety nine, ninety nine, and you get your breast implants, you're not going to be getting a textured
0: implant. You know, no one is okay. unless there's a special circumstance. So the risk
1: of that is extremely low.
0: And what should someone, if someone was either A, going to get implants or B, take them out, what should they look for in a clinician or what should they look for in a surgeon to know that that surgeon you know, is qualified to do that?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think about these questions a lot, um, having switched careers and having done different things in my life and having had surgery myself. And I think that the most important thing is that you are, number one, able to be heard and able to speak to your practitioner. Number two, they are extremely transparent about their credentials, what they do and why they think they can help you. And you know, I think overall, it's just that, that feeling. Um I, you know, having been a patient again, I've gone on consultations and I think you just know who's going to really take care of you and who's not. And just because they have 2.5 million followers on Instagram doesn't mean that they're the doctor for you. You know, you really need to pay attention. You need to ask questions. You need to feel comfortable. And, you know, anyone who is doing a great job is going to be happily, you know, happy and able to give you their credentials, show you the before and afters, et cetera.
0: Yeah. I think that that's really valuable. Uh, I, I definitely feel that way in terms of uh, patients that I see. What are some other trends in plastic surgery? So just to close out this breast plant illness, that um, there is a possibility, right? This is, uh, we just don't know enough about it. It doesn't mean, from what I'm understanding you say, it doesn't mean that everybody with implants who's not feeling well should go through explantation, that that also in and of itself has a tremendous amount of... Um, heavy, not necessarily risk mm-hmm. per se, but a burden of mm-hmm. the post operative experience. Is that I'm getting from you?
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that you and I are both on the same page. Like, this is something that's new, that has definitely been, um, you know, um, brought up in the media so much that it is sensationalized to some degree. And, um, you know, we live in a world where we're eating a lot of processed foods. We're not exercising. Hmm. We are living completely different lives surrounded by technology, whether that be good or bad. And it's hard to attribute just a breast implant to the symptoms that people are facing. You know, I think have you, if you took someone who was, you know, doing everything right and the only thing left were the breast implants, you could absolutely make that correlation. Hmm. But it's really hard to do that, especially with all the studies that have been done that are plus or minus. Um, and it's really, you know, a personal decision, I think, on the patient, whether or not this is what they feel is causing their symptoms and whether or not they should seek out explantation.
0: Hmm. So the totality of evidence seems as if it's, it, it's non-conclusive, basically, is what... Right. I mean, it's real. It is a... It is for sure.
1: You know, breast implant illness is breast implant illness, but yes. the direct correlation from the implants itself to the disease process or to the mm-hmm. systemic manifestations that has yet to be decided. You know, where we're is it a biofilm? Is it an autoimmune trigger? You know, there's just still a lot of speculation that we can't nail it down yet. And hopefully, let me ask you this.
0: Yeah, let me ask you this. When a breast implant is excised or explanted. Does that implant always go through pathology or or it's not necessary?
1: So if you are seeking it out for breast implant illness, then it would be something that I would definitely, you know, discuss with you and ask if you would want that to be done. Um, You know, knowing that you send it to a pathologist, they interpret it, they'll do their tests. Um, But routinely, no, you know, someone is having their breast implant out for another reason, we don't send them, you know, if they are ruptured, or if there's a manufacturer defect, then yes, they will go back to the manufacturer. um, And they'll be analyzed further that way. But we don't send every set of implants to pathology. Um, And that's because most, you know, most plastic surgeons today are working out of their own office, and we don't have pathologists on standby. But that doesn't mean we can't make that happen for someone who is inquiring.
0: And would you say that there's not a Standard of, like, let's say they send it off to pathology, and then there's this one I don't know, obviously wouldn't be bacteria, but this one uh, thing that's isolated. You right, yeah, so some of the study, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. You know, there, no, that by far and large, there is no standard. I want to run the breast implant illness test on this implant, like you could do for melanoma or other disease processes in the body. There's nothing like that Um, because, again, we don't know. We don't know if it's a biofilm. We don't know if it's a, you know, capsule reaction. We don't know if there's metaplasia there. Some studies are, some studies are not, you know, and it's like, do we really know if it's X, Y, or Z bacteria or could it be bacteria A? You know, we can't test for Mm -hmm. every single thing. Um, So, it would definitely be a
0: tough job on the pathologist (laughs) if they had to analyze every single implant that way. I have a couple other questions about just breast implants in general that a lot of people are curious about. Does it affect breastfeeding? So
1: yes and no, it can. Okay. Um, And it really depends on multiple factors, you know, where the implant itself is placed, um, the breast tissue. Uh, volume that you have prior to implantation. Um, If you have any, you know, reaction, or if you have any complications related to your surgery, if your surgery is done with a lift as well. um, I basically tell people, you know, it's hard for me to know if you were going to be able to breastfeed in the first place. So, you know, avoiding or not avoiding breast implants based off of that, also, again, has to be a personal decision. If to you, the most important thing is to be able to breastfeed your baby, then you might want to hold off on your implants until you're done having children because it's not something that I can predict. Um, things to reduce the risk, you know, if you've already got um, extremely small breasts and you want to go to very large breasts, or you know, you prefer your implant to be above the muscle, these are things that could increase your risk of having issues lactating um, or breastfeeding after the procedure, but. Most of the time, you know, people don't have an issue or or even if they do, it's not something that distresses them too much if they thought about it.
0: That's good news. Um, Mm -hmm. In terms of, you said above the muscle versus under the muscle, I'm assuming Mm -hmm. that those are placements for breast implants. What would determine if someone was thinking about breast implants, would they do above uh, or below the muscle? And then the next question is safety, right? Um... You know, we kind of, you know, what is your perspective on, you know, implants in general in terms of of safety profile?
1: So safety profile, I think they're extremely safe. You know, we've been doing them for so many years um, and the complication is very low. So if it's something that you want, you desire, you have the, you know, financial means to go through and psychologically you're stable. You're not, you know, banking on your breast implants, completing your life then yeah, it's a completely safe operation. Where to have the implants, what kind of implants, you know, in general, I recommend um, under the muscle placement because it gives a more natural look to the breast implants versus a, you know, over time, this implant in a pocket of skin appearance that can happen if you have lower body fat. Um, But there are certain reasons why we would put them above the muscle and it's all patient dependent. Um, silicone versus saline is another conversation that I have with patients. I typically recommend silicone gel, which are, you know, you could cut into them and they would not leak out. So it's not the same thing that you maybe think about um, when you think about silicone implants versus saline, which tend to, you know, be able to deflate rapidly. They um, show rippling, you know, they have a more firm, less natural feel to them. So, it's it's really dependent upon you and what you want for your body and your aesthetic goals. Um, but we do have options and mm-hmm. it's very safe.
0: I so appreciate Inside Tracker sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. And listen, if you are enjoying this conversation with Dr. Candice and myself, you are understanding the importance of knowing what is going on in your body. Perhaps you do have chronic inflammation. Perhaps you have issues with your thyroid. There are many, many things going on under the hood, and it's critical for you to know what those are. So guess what? I'm so excited to be able to share with you that they have a sale. It's actually supposed to be for Black Friday slash Cyber Monday, but until further notice, you get $200 off inside Tracker's ultimate plan or 34% off the entire store. This is huge. So if you have not done this before, please, 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 I strongly recommend you do it. You do have to know what is going on inside your body. Go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lyon for my exclusive discount. This is amazing. Inside Tracker was created by experts in aging, biometrics, genetics from a whole slew of fine institutions. And what I love about this is they have a massive discount for you guys. Go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. and you can get $200 off the ultimate plan or 34% off the rest of the store. I'd like to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is First Form. You can go to firstform.com slash Dr. Today, I want to mention collagen. I talk a lot about other types of protein, and collagen actually has a protein score of zero, but we are not using collagen to build muscle. Why collagen is really important is for hair, skin, nails, skin elasticity, and unfortunately, collagen, which is a protein found in every single joint, tendon, bone, ligament in the body, decreases as we age, and the ability to turn over and regenerate collagen also decreases. This is not ideal if you care about your skin and skin elasticity, Therefore, First Form has decided to make a low-temperature process hydrolyzed collagen. It's high-quality, bioavailable. Uh, They've sourced five different types of collagen, and it also contains 50 milligrams per serving of Dermavol, which is a phytonutrient complex that increases and helps maintain healthy levels of elastin in the body. So if you want to throw some collagen in your coffee, which I do, you can actually grab the peppermint mocha flavor. Go to firstform.com slash drlion for free shipping, firstform.com slash drlion for free shipping. And what about other trends in plastic surgery? What are some of the other trends? Um, by the way, I did see something called the Brazilian butt lift. <laughs> I don't know oh, if that yeah. is still trending, but what are. Um... It is still trending. <laughs> and I do this, okay? So we can't say that it's terrible,
1: but not all of us want to look like Kim Kardashian or Nicki Minaj, and that is okay. Um, there are, so Brazilian butt lift is definitely a trend. Um, I would say it's, you know, stabilizing as far as it's not uprising right now like it was in the past several years. Can you explain Um, to people what a Brazilian, can you explain to people what a Brazilian butt lift is? Thank you. Yeah. So (laughs) it's basically liposuction of whatever trouble spots or whatever thicker spots on your body that you don't like. It's liposuctioning the fat from those areas and then transferring the fat into the buttocks to give yourself a more hourglass or curvy shape. So for example, um, you know, I do something called like the slim BBL or the conservative BBL where someone may have a little pudge on their stomach or around their waistline, like our our hips or our what we call the flank area, or maybe even the upper back, the bra roll. So we can liposuction that out, leave you nice and, you know, tight and skinny and contoured there. And what is removed gets filtered, you know, debris taken out, things like that and the blood taken out and then we put the fat back into the buttocks augmenting
0: that area. Um so that's that's a BBL. It's moving fat so around. So it's not your so own a, fat. Okay, so a Brazilian butt lift in terms of trends for plastic surgery is not actually an implantable but it's taking no transfer it's no, doing fat be, yeah that chest. it's transferring fat. So,
1: you know, um south america you know latin america south florida we have a lot of post-op bbl people walking around every day Can you tell you think, are you like wow oh, man. they <laughs> must do a lot of squats but it's not the squats
0: <laughs> are you like, like ah a come success. on
1: that, that, that's i know F-B-L. i know and you know what sometimes people still even trip me up i'm like wow that girl looks so good
0: and then i'm like wait a minute <laughs> And what Where would happen? Go? <laughs> That's so funny. Um, what would happen if because it is a fat transfer, if an individual were to lose weight, do they also lose those adipocytes or wherever that fat was transferred? How does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So we we transfer a certain
1: amount and that amount never takes a hundred percent. So mm-hmm. I can put in a thousand CCs per butt cheek and only six hundred or five hundred stay. So you're always overinflated right away. And then a certain percentage lasts. Um, very, very rarely does almost all of its day. And the same thing happens, you know, as in the recovery process, as in life, you know, things fluctuate, your metabolism changes, you exercise, you go through stress, you sit on it, you know, whatever it may be that can cause the fat cells to shrink or expand can happen with the with the fat transfer. But um, the good thing is that Typically, once the fat is removed from another area, that's no longer your trouble spot. But where the fat is, you can gain or lose, you know, more weight. Hmm.
0: What are some other trends in plastic surgery that you're seeing right now? And by the way, would Miami be one of the more progressive places, you know, typically, uh, you know, depending on if you're in a, at a coast, whether it's a New York, Miami LA. yeah I mean it's always it's
1: always Miami LA and New York with all of the trends you know I would say more so Miami because it tends to be more affordable you know we've got a lot of competition as far as lots of doctors doing lots of different things and whether or not that's safe you know it's up for debate but um, you know you always look to the big cities and the trending cities where the celebrities are and things like that and that's where these things come out of but um, and then as you know, Responsible physicians, we have to determine whether or not these are good ideas. Um, and so on top of the BBL, we've got, you know, the big thing lately with younger girls is the the fox eye. So like people want their eyebrow lifted really, really high out laterally. Um, and that can be done either with threads that can be done very um subtly with Botox, or it can be done with a surgical excision of the skin right to the side of the eyebrow to allow the eyebrow itself to sit more high and tight, making it look like you've got a really, really, really tight ponytail on constantly. So Hmm. that's one thing that I've seen some requests for. Um, Injections are always, you know, there's always something new with injections that people want to try, whether it's doing the, you know, non-surgical nose job you know changing the shape of your nose using injectables enhancing our lips enhancing our cheeks our chin you know everything um those are those are really the trending things right now the fat
0: injection or the fat transfer injections you know brow lips things like that what kind of injectables are used and are they safe
1: so there are there's the two or three main classes of injectables. You know, we think about the neuromodulators, which is like your Botox, your Dysport, the Amen, Juvo, and now Daxi. And these are basically compounds that we inject into the muscles to cause them to temporarily weaken or paralyze so that your wrinkles go away. Those have been around forever as well, and they're pretty safe. You know, if you use them off-label, you use them in certain areas, you can obviously have complications. Recently, there was a girl on Instagram who was sharing her story about how she got injected and then her eye dropped and, you know, she looked kind of like really terrible for a couple of months until it wore off. Um, but that's extremely rare. And if you go to an injector who's injected before, the chance of that happening is like super low.
0: Um, When you say super low, you're meaning like... Like less than 0.1% should something like that
1: happen. Okay. Yeah. Anyone who's doing this is trained. They should be trained. You know, you should ask them, make sure you're not the guinea pig, of course. If you are, just be willing to accept the risks, I guess. Um, And just, you know, it's not that hard to keep it in the right spot, you know, whether or not you want to get the outcome that you want depends on how good of the injector. But safety-wise, they're very safe. Um, otherwise, there's fillers. You know, we have hyaluronic acid fillers. We have other kind of branch offs of the hyaluronic acid, which are biostimulatory fillers that include different compounds like vicryl, um, calcium, um, and other substances that cause your body to kind of produce more collagen. So the classic fillers, you put them in, you see where they're at, and you get your results pretty much right away. The and how long do they last? One- they can last anywhere from 6 months to almost 2 years. You know, the highest or the longest lasting ones supposedly last around 2 years, but that really depends on your body. You know, if you're a runner and you're thin and you've got high metabolism, it's not going to last as long and we've seen that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if it's an area that you don't move quite as much, like um, you know, the temples or the upper parts of your cheek, then it's going to last a little longer than around your mouth where you're constantly moving and the product is getting dissolved quicker. Um, so those are the classic fillers. When we think about the biostimulatory ones, it's the stuff like Sculptra, Radiesse, um, Bellafill. you know, and these are injected, they may not, you're not going to get the result that is expected right away. It's injected, then it kind of dissolves away a little bit. And then over several months, you see this enhanced production of collagen, your skin may glow a little bit, Um, you know, you may see increase in the volume overall. And those, um, those, I would say, you know, you really have to make sure you're going to an experienced injector because these are not reversible fillers. So
0: they're not something that that you get. Yeah.
1: So typically fillers are reversible if they're hyaluronic acid we have a compound hyaluronidase which is also found in your body in certain levels that we can inject to take the filler away so if you go get lip injections with a hyaluronic acid filler and they look awful and your significant other thinks you look like a duck or whatever it may be you can turn that around you know you can get it reversed you can get it dissolved um and the same thing with most anywhere else on the face if you're using that type of product However, when we go down this road of the biostimulatory fillers or things that are not studied or not used in the U.S., you know, at one point people were injecting straight silicone into lips. That's where you have to be careful because if there's not a reversible agent for that and you don't like the outcome, you're stuck with it or you have to undergo surgery to get it removed. And unfortunately, I've that, seen that, you know, in lists really? and things like that. Oh
0: yeah, God. I know. So it's, that, it's not, the what did you call them? Too. The bio... Um, Biostimulatory. So they're like, it's typically, you know,
1: saline or lidocaine or a little bit of hyaluronic acid mixed with something else. Um, collagen itself mixed with calcium or calcium and small microspheres of vikryl, which is vikryl is overall, in general, you know, it ends up dissolving over time, but not if you create a biofilm and you have this response, you know, all the things that we go down when we consider mm-hmm. adverse potential adverse events that can happen with fillers. In general, so, though, the hyaluronic yeah. acids are safe.
0: Oh, and for example, Sculptra, if you don't like your outcome, does that it, mm-hmm. it will dissolve over time? Or no, this is That's interesting a, that so okay. Sculptra has like the the Vicrol
1: kind of products in it and most of the time mm-hmm. it is safe and you do end up having a great beautiful result um it's also got. But if it is not also,
0: an experienced injector is what you're saying don't go do exactly do don't go to an, an inexperienced
1: injector make sure that the person that you're that's doing your sculptra has done sculpture before um, because you want to have a beautiful result. You don't want to get nodules. You don't want to have complications. You don't want to mm-hmm. wish that you never did this because it's not something that can readily be turned around.
0: What are some other? So overall, you know, don't you feel that people? Uh, it's it's really interesting, right? So there's this all natural space, and then mm-hmm. you know it seems that people kind of exist in very binary spaces. For example, they're yeah. all natural and in- Against injecting, Uh, how could someone do that? That's terrible for them. And then I would say the other group that is not thinking twice about it. Right, Uh, these things are being used over a period of time. It's not really a big deal. Uh, Do you find that people are very confused about what is safe, what is not, or the majority of people that are coming to you uh, are they're good to go?
1: I would say the most of the people that come to, you know, our plastic surgery office have done a lot of research or they've had friends that have done procedures that they are mostly comfortable with doing things. They will ask questions, of course, if they are at all skeptical, but you know, the the chance of someone who is on the more natural, holistic, I'm never gonna use these products in my body spectrum. They don't show up as often, you know, just because they would never even consider making an appointment. Um, But there are a lot of people who are in the middle, and I would consider myself one of those people because I want to be clean, I want to exercise, but you know what? I also want to have
0: good lips. (laughs) I uh, I think that that is totally admirable. You know, I joke with my best friend. You know, she. She totally is like, don't give me gluten, but I'll take all the Botox. Yeah, yeah. Right. She's really funny. (laughs) It's all about balance. (laughs) Uh, What are some other trends uh, if we haven't covered them? So we've talked about uh, breast implants. We've talked about this BBL, talked about some of the injectables, which I think is really interesting. And basically, you know, to round it out, I'm hearing you say that they've been used for a long time. They are safe. It doesn't go systemic. It is local. And as long as you are going to a provider that this is what they do routinely, that um, you don't see a downside. Totally,
1: You know, obviously doing a lot of research um, while being pregnant, I was like, you know, I mean, I'm not going to use them while I'm pregnant, but are these really bad for us? Like, are they going all throughout our body? And the answer is no, you know. You can inject these things and they stay in the face unless someone injects into your artery, which you're going to kind of know right away. And you could potentially have a really big complication from that. But that's, again, rare. Mm. Um, The chance of having a systemic issue related to these injectables is like almost nothing. So, Mm. you know, again, proceed with caution. Choose an injector that you trust, someone who has experience and someone who's knowledgeable about all the products, but as well as all the potential complications of using the product and you'll be in good hands and you don't have to worry that, you know, you're going to develop cancer down the road because you got lip filler.
0: Um, that is probably very helpful for people to hear. What about uh, other kind of trends in plastic surgery or things that you're doing more of things that you're seeing a, a bit more of? Yeah.
1: So, you know, I mean, obviously, with social media, we had a really big uptick in rhinoplasties. I don't specifically do rhinoplasties, but my partner in our office does. So we've had a definitely increase in that. And one of the interesting things is there was an article recently that the cameras on our iPhone show our nose to be a percentage larger than it is in real life. So people are, you know, thinking that they look you know, very nose heavy, and then the reality is not the case, but you take 10 selfies a day, and that's, that's your reality. So we've had people undergo procedures based off of, you know, basically selfies. And Mm. that's okay, as long as they know the risks, and they know what their outcome is. Um, But people are more conscious of, you know, or people I think are more open to this self care, self love, like, you know, now or never. I'm going to take care of me. Lots of mommy makeovers happening and included in the mommy makeover I've had, you know, an increase of women who are interested in having labiaplasties.
0: Um, and Can that you explain? You know, so, people don't know what that is. They probably, yeah. they might not even know what a rhinoplasty is. I mean, it's yeah. a rhino oh, nose. nose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And are you saying sorry. nose job where they actually break their nose and reset it? Yeah. Or are you talking about the injectable? You said an injectable rhinoplasty? both. So, so,
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, for the noses, we've had, you know, people who maybe they don't like the contour or the shape. And so they're. They want to try something, but they're not committed to the nose job itself, the surgery mm. itself. And so that's an area that has increased. That's the liquid rhinoplasty or like the you know quick 10-minute nose job um, with just filler. So that's temporary. Um, and I think that is a good option for people if they're considering surgery but not sure if they're really ready to commit. Now, the anatomy has to be right for this. You know, If you've got like a big bump, like myself, like I have a bump on my nose, Putting some filler in it is only going to make it look bigger. You know, it's not going to necessarily show me what my after could be. However, if there's different, you know, things that you want to refine, then it could be a way for you to see what your outcome could look like. Um, But with the same rise in the liquid rhinoplasties, we've seen a rise in the actual surgery, you know, because people are ready to commit to something forever. And, you know, they say, you know, this has bothered me since I was 10. Or since I was 15, and it's now or never. You know, there was a lot of um, us realizing our um, mortality through the pandemic. So we've got people who are ready to do things that they've always been bothered by because you never know when your last day is, kind of a thing. Um, yeah. So we've seen, you know, definitely the noses because, of course, we're all on Zoom and you know virtual consults and things like that. Um, and then. The other topic that I was touching on was like the mommy makeovers and the labioplasty. So a classic mommy makeover is doing your breasts and your tummy, you know, whether your breasts need a lift or an implant or, you know, some combination of the two or reduction. And then um, the abdomen or the tummy doesn't do you need a tummy tuck or just need liposuction? You know, what can we do to make you feel good about your body again? Um, after babies or just after life changes, whether that be weight loss, aging, whatever it is that you feel now is the time to do something. But on top of those two parts, people are also requesting a labiaplasty at the same time, um, because we can do it at the same time and while they're having surgery. They say, you know, um, my lady parts have always not been what I thought they should look like, or I maybe want a different appearance or things have changed with hormones or with babies and I'd
0: like it to look a little different. And we do have procedures for that. And what is, uh, number one, what is a labiaplasty? So it's basically
1: um, assessing the labia majora and the menorah, so the Mm -hmm. anatomy of the girl parts. And deciding which area you don't like, or you do like, and how we can change them to fit better your ideal perception. So if maybe the inner part is, you know, hanging the way that a way that you don't like, or it's uncomfortable, or it rubs mm. in clothing, or it's just, you know, not what you want it to look like, then we can basically trim that and make it look tighter, wow. more aesthetically pleasing. If you've got, you know, if you've gone through weight loss, and you've Some changes in the way that the fat is, we can enhance that or you know suction that. There's there's a lot of different things that can be done, but the overall goal is to increase the aesthetic look in that area. And a lot of women are requesting that. You know, it's very personal uh, and something. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's very personal and it's something that you know people really think about. But I'm telling you, the satisfaction afterwards with the patients is so great.
0: They are so Hmm. happy. So thankful, you know, really pleased that they did that for themselves. And it is it uh, pretty safe? And in terms of recovery, how long of a recovery are they looking for? Really, any? Yeah, is it the you same is it you need to have? Sorry, yeah, for you you all have, surgery. Yeah,
1: yeah, you know, you need to have downtime. You need to have recovery. Um, there is a period of pelvic rest. You know, no like heavy exercising, sexual activity, that kind of a thing for two weeks. Um, I typically give people some ointment, and then some, you know, um, antifungal to make sure yeast infection doesn't happen during that procedure. But um, it's really, you know, very, very safe. And we stay outside, I stay specifically outside the areas that could complicate, you know, orgasm and sexual function after the procedure. So, you know, asking those questions, I think is important too, because you do want to know your risks. Um, But if it's strictly cosmetic,
0: it's really, you know, low, you know, low issues of uh, safety. Um, can I ask you a semi-personal question, but um, not totally personal, mm-hmm. <laughs> but thought really thought provoking. Have you found it challenging to um, kind of address the externalness of a person, right? So just like the concept of women trying to push for a particular, s- pa- you know, standard, um, Mm -hmm. Have you thought about that at all? Does that impact you? Positive, negative? How do you, you know, like, as I think about, um, you know, when I was in my 20s, I I think that I was very externally focused. And then, you know, as you get a little bit older, you kind of realize that it's not so, you know, you're less externally focused. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I feel more internally focused now. I don't know if you know you watch that kind of transition how you feel about that within yourself and how you feel that about that how that works for the patients as well
1: yeah so you know i think that a lot of what we feel on the outside is related to how we feel on the inside and if you've got a lot of trauma and turmoil and things going in your life that you don't feel they're going in the right directions and you may speak you know, mm. support externally to make yourself feel better and to hide some of those things. And I try to pay attention to that. You know, when I'm seeing patients and talking to them about procedures, and I, you know, my my kind of my golden rule is never to suggest that they have something that they haven't brought to me because the last mm. thing I would want to do is make someone who's already questioning how they feel on the outside even worse. Um, but you know, personally, I would say as i've kind of gone through my career doing weight loss and now more cosmetic you know surgery and injectables and focusing a lot of my career has been focused on the external and i would say that you know the success stories and the people who are the happiest afterwards and who love themselves afterwards they kind of loved themselves before, you know, and whether or not Amazing. they had a trauma that brought them to this point where they needed to do something about it, they have the capability to overcome. And I think that that resilience, you can tell, you know, you can tell with people and if anything, for me personally, it just makes me normalize everything, and I'm like, oh yeah, I should do my boobs
0: <laughs> again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny but, uh, and and yeah. really insightful, you know. As yeah. uh, listen, hey, it's no easy task to become a surgeon and to do the amount of training that you've done, and that definitely requires a certain amount of grit and resilience, just as a human. Truly, the yeah. amount of sacrifice and time that that you've put in. I I don't want it to be lost on the the listener. Number one, you're what seven months pregnant beautiful part of a a pretty big operation (laughs) in terms of a practice and it is no easy feat to be where you are and have created what you create Uh, is totally not lost on me, you know, and I'm sure the listener can really appreciate that. Thank
1: you so much. That's so sweet.
0: Yeah, Um, it's true. It's true.
1: It it, it is true. (laughs) I will say that because you know, I read a lot of articles and just about like women in our profession, you know, in medicine and in the health and wellness space and specifically I read an article the other day and it was talking about, you know, women in surgery and I'm I'm a proponent of that. Like I'm every year for the past 13 years I've gone to this conference called Women in Surgery that's held typically in Florida and we talk about how we can promote ways to get women in surgery. But you know, lately I have really begun to think If they want to be there, they'll be there. You know, like I don't think people should be forced or coerced or um, encouraged into a situation that they're not prepared for because it's not easy. It's not easy to be a mom and a wife and to operate and to try to do all the things. And if you don't have that and you aren't a resilient person with, you know, whatever you need to get by, whether that be your faith or your family or your friends. It could be a really miserable life, and people shouldn't go into that unless they really want to. They really feel driven to do so, and it's their calling. I think
0: that that's really that's well said and and women in medicine, you you know uh, definitely have to have thick skin. and I think that um, if, if you are going to succeed in the arena, you have to be in the arena the arena and you have to be able to manage what comes yeah. with that responsibility. You know, yeah, you have um, to train, you have to fight, you have to prepare, you know, and you have to perform. So, yeah, not I, for everybody. <laughs> it's not for everybody. Now, you were you had originally done weight loss, mm-hmm. and how did you? What were you doing for weight loss, and how did you make the the transition over?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I was doing everything from um, just putting people on a simple diet and recommending changes in their daily habits. To prescribing medications, and I'm board certified in obesity medicine as well, and um, performing weight loss surgery. So I was doing all the things, like literally from zero to a hundred. Um, and while I was definitely successful in that and felt like I was um, helping a lot of people, I felt like I was also not helping a lot of people. And the artistic side of me really just became drawn to the aesthetic. So you know, it was a it was a personal decision to kind of change my career. An amazing, amazing opportunity came to me and I grabbed it. You know, I'm a doer. So it's like if I love you.
0: Yeah, I've I've
1: got this chance to change my life and it's gonna be for the better, why would I not do that? You know, why would I not you know, basically risk everything to just do something that could get me further.
0: So, so what did. happened? Um, were you just you were doing? Uh, medical oh, I was working. Off. I was
1: just like living my life. And I got a call kind of out of the blue. I, I owned my med spa at the time. And they were like, you know, we were looking for someone like you that we want to train and that we want to join our group. And, you know, kind of the conversation started there. And it is where I am today. You know, I'm now working at mm. a hospital surgery in Palm Beach Gardens and loving my life and doing completely different than what I thought I would be 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, you know, weight loss, I still have a special place for weight loss, because I talk to patients about this mm. often, because I do body contouring, and I do the liposuction and stuff. And a lot of times that overlaps, or most of the time that overlaps, you know, it's someone who's struggling with their weight, Um, or they have been successful with losing the amount of weight they want to lose, but now they want to tune things up, or they've got excess
0: skin that needs to be removed. And what were the big weight loss surgeries that you were doing? Was it Ruin Y or gastric bypass? Yeah, I was doing the Ruin Y, um, but I was
1: mostly doing the sleeve gastrectomy, um, because I felt that in the long run, especially if I was operating on someone who was younger, their chance of having... A complication or an issue down the road was less. So, you know, I took that into consideration. If I'm, you know, if I'm going to operate on a 22-year-old girl who has the rest of her life to live, anatomically, it's safer for her to just have a smaller stomach than for me to reroute her intestines and have the Total. potentials of bowel obstructions and, you know, all the things that can come with the bypass. Now, when there were patients that needed the bypass, of course, I did the bypass. And that was much more intense, um, both you know, for me, but also for the patients long term, you know, some have no issues and they do great, but others don't. So, you know, making that decision was really a big deal to me. So I would say I did, I did more sleeves than I did bypasses by the time I was, you know, rounding out that part of my life.
0: And what would be an indication for say a gastric for the listener, a gastric bypass versus a sleeve?
1: Yeah, so mostly, it would be, I would look at people who had severe reflux. Um, so if your heartburn is like off the charts, not controlled with medication, then you've probably got an anto- anatomic issue that's causing that and doing a sleeve could make that worse, okay? Mm. And, you know, me forward thinking, I was like, okay, if I've got someone with reflux, I'm going to do a procedure that could potentially make it worse. We know that reflux can cause changes in the esophageal lining and those changes can lead to pre-cancer, can lead to cancer. Why would Why on earth would I do that to someone? You know, but that's not actually the standard. The standard could be either way, you know, control the reflux and then still do a sleeve. And so at least more recently, that's what it was. So if someone had really bad reflux, I would recommend the bypass um, and also diabetes. All of the studies show that if the patient is, you know, a really bad diabetic, the bypass is going to do better than the sleeve long term. So Mm. those were my main two factors for making that decision if I was on the fence at all.
0: And and now, do you do any of that anymore? No. <laughs> <laughs> and no. you're out. <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah. it's interesting, right? Like you, you, yeah, did a career in surgery, and then you went to medical weight loss, and you probably got there, and you were just like, I'm just cranking this out. This is not what I want to be doing. I'm not able to do anything yeah. artistic, and yeah, you know, it's um, a yeah. challenging, you know.
1: It is. It is, and it's. Um, Sometimes you don't realize your talents until you do them, you know, like I would say, you know, I, I wouldn't have considered myself necessarily an artistic person, but now that I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm like, oh yeah, this is my jam. This is what I should be doing. This is what I should have been doing. Like I should have just gone from point A to point B and done this Mm. in the beginning. But I am such a, you know, like we said, I'm, I'm wellness oriented too. Like I'm very into fitness and nutrition and, you know, over overall health. So during my training, I was exposed to the bariatric field and to weight loss. And I was like, Oh, yeah, this is my jam, too. Um, you know, I worked for I worked at a gym at a certain point in my life, I did every probably diet there is on earth, think, trying to see what would work and what would be the best biohack for people. Mm.
0: So you know, it wasn't a bad decision. It's just now I'm I feel more more myself. Do you think that there was an early indication that you were Meant to do what you're doing now, and maybe you had ignored that. Um, yes, yes, definitely. But is there anything that I would have done differently?
1: No. Um, and you know, I, I don't know. It, it's hard to say. You know, like if I had done things differently, would I be exactly where I am now? Probably not. You know, like I might not have met my husband. I might not have had my child, my child, and my soon-to-be children. Amazing. when I did, you know, everything mm-hmm. happens for a reason. So it's definitely no regret. But yeah, if I, you know, probably if you talk to people that know me, they would be like, Oh, yeah, this is what she was meant to do. We all knew this it was going to happen eventually. But
0: here we are. <laughs> here we are. And what, what is next on the horizon for you? Obviously, you're having a child, which is so amazing. Is there something yeah. that you're looking to do that, you know, is perhaps an emerging procedure or well, just what's next for you? You know and my
1: okay i'm going to have the baby obviously and then i'm going to be focusing a lot on my own personal health and wellness and getting tuned up and back to feeling myself because i would say you know you know because you're a mom too it takes time it takes time to feel like yourself again so my number one priority is going to be taking care of my new baby my family and then feeling like myself again and then from there you know i want to do things like this i want to do more outreach i want to do more you know speaking engagements and things like that because i really love it you know i i find it fun it's not at all scary to me and you know i think the more we're able to educate people the more we just have empowerment in general and it's it's good for everybody
0: i have no doubt that you will be doing that and i'm so grateful that you carved out time in your day to sit with me and chat um i really really appreciate it i think that people can learn a lot from you i you know, I value you so much. And number one, you're a well trained physician. You've had a lot of experience. And I think you have this beautiful way of meeting in the middle, right? You do uh, surgery, but you also are very fitness minded. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. Where can people find you? Social media. You
1: know, Fleming um, Surgeon is my handle on Instagram. That's where you'll find me the most. But I mean, I love being approachable and and reachable. So you can literally email me, FlemingSurgeon at gmail.com, you know. Um, But Instagram is probably the easiest way. And that's where I post all my my things when I get the time.
0: (laughs) And we will link everything uh, here. And uh, Dr. Candice, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so honored to have been here and been able to talk with you about all of this.
0: It's great. And... Hey guys, if you like this episode, which I'm sure that you do, please like, subscribe, rate, and comment. And uh, till next time. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice, for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.